Gracious Lord God, uh, we invite you to make of us instruments of your love in this world. Transform our understanding of what it means to follow you so that our life of faith becomes more and more a life of love and a proof of your love in this world. We pray this together in the name of Jesus. Amen. Well, good morning, beloved covenant family. I'm going to be preaching this morning about something that I believe has a potential, for some of us at least, to turn upside down your understanding of what the Christian life is all about. So here's where I want to start with you this morning. Do you know what this is? Looks like maybe a credit card or a membership card or maybe a gift card, but it is actually a room key. Compliments of Alexa, who's part of the guest services staff over at Four Points Sheraton here in West Lafayette. In John chapter 10, verse 7, Jesus says, Truly I say to you, I am the door. So the question is, what is on the other side of the door? Once I find the key, and the scriptures are clear about what the key is, it is me trusting Jesus as the Savior who died for me and me entrusting my life into his care and guidance as the Lord of life. So once I find the key and step through the door, then what does the door open out onto? What's on the other side of the door? It's really what the passage is all about that we are going to be looking at today. 1 John chapter 4, we're going to be looking at verses 12 to 16. I believe that if we are listening carefully this morning and our hearts are open, that this passage has a potential to cause us to really significantly rethink our understanding of the Christian life. And at the very least, to deepen our understanding of the dynamic adventure that the life of faith is meant to be. So to begin with, let me just share an example with you of two different experiences of walking through a door and into what is on the other side. The first experience is a hotel. You go inside the building and you find your hotel room and then using your room key, you walk into your hotel room. And then, well, you've arrived. You're in your room and there you stay until it's time to check out. Well, that's one view of the Christian life. First you were outside, then you passed through the door, and now you are inside. The corridor outside could be called lost. The door that you walk through is Jesus, and the room that you're in now is called saved. And there you stay. And eventually it'll come time to check out and go on to the great hotel in the sky. Accurate? Well, yes, technically, but barely recognizable as the biblical version of what the Christian life is meant to be. So let me contrast that with an experience that Sharon and I had two summers ago during the sabbatical experience we were blessed to enjoy when we had a chance to go into St. John's College in Cambridge. So when you arrive at the college, you enter in through the 500-year-old 
great gate. And then you walk straight into the magnificent first court. And that in itself is amazing enough, but there's more. From there, you go through another massive entrance and into the second court where you find the chapel, which is gorgeous, and the adjoining chapel court. But if you keep on going from there, you'll discover that past the second court is another court, the third court, which gives you access to the library and the library court and the north court. But even that isn't all. If you keep walking across the third court, you'll come to the Bridge of Sighs. And a walk across the bridge takes you over the River Cam and out into what's called the Backs, where the campus just keeps going and going. Here you will find the new court with its beautiful cloistered walls and its stunning gardens. And you'll find the Scholar's Garden with the endless paths stretching off into the distance. Not to mention the Upper River Court, the Lower River Court, Merton's Court, the School of Pythagoras, the Porter's Lodge, the Fellows Garden, the Playing Fields, all of it beckoning to you to go further and further in. Well, that's a different view of the Christian life. The corridor outside or the place outside the room is still called lost. The door you walk through is still Jesus. And the key is still faith in Christ. And yes, the place you are in now is still called saved, but it isn't a room. It's a, it's a place, it's a path, it's a, it's a grounds, it's a garden. It is a rich and inviting realm, an invitation into an ever-deepening relationship with God and an ever-more surrendered life in his service. And it's that second version that is the more biblically faithful faithful version of the Christian life. So let me just say this. If based on your experience so far, if you think the Christian life is boring, you are on the wrong bus. So starting about 100 years ago, the evangelical church, of which we are a part, set out to make the good news of the Christian faith clear and accessible to everyone. Unfortunately, in their efforts to simplify the gospel and make it plain, I believe that the evangelical church oversimplified the gospel and stripped it of some of its richest and most life-giving stuff, leaving, it, leaving us with a, a flat, believe and you're saved, two-dimensional understanding of the Christian life, instead of a vivid, live your life with and for God three-dimensional understanding of the Christian life. So let me just put these two views up side by side and walk through them. So the standard view is more static. It sees the Christian life as two-dimensional. You're either in or you're out. And once you're in, well, there's really not much more that happens. You just stay in your room until you die or Jesus returns, and then you go spend eternity with him. But the other view sees the Christian life as three-dimensional, it's much more dynamic. Once you enter into relationship with Christ, then you are always progressing, moving, growing, changing. The two-dimensional view thinks of being a Christian in terms of a moment of faith. The key concern is getting in. It's all about a change of status, moving from unforgiven to forgiven, from alienated to reconciled. But the three-dimensional view thinks of being a Christian in terms of a life of faith. The moment of faith is, things, is when things begin in the Christian life, not when they end. The key concern, once you've entered in, is going further in and still further in. It's all about a change 
of heart that follows that change of status. We are saved by Jesus, and now more and more we become like him. In the two-dimensional view, at its root, salvation is understood as an exchange with God. My faith in exchange for his salvation, sort of a contractual arrangement that centers on believing certain things to be true. But in the three-dimensional view, at its root, salvation is understood primarily as entering into a relationship with God. My life lived with him and for him, a life of trusting him and abiding in him. In the first view, the primary emphasis of discipleship is on information, learning more about Jesus. In the three-dimensional view, the primary emphasis of discipleship is on transformation, becoming more like Jesus. Who is ultimately responsible for the life of faith? Well, in the first view, it's all on me. The life of faith is the life that I live for God, dependent upon me, on my effort, me trying to please God. But in the three-dimensional view, the life of faith is recognized as the life God lives in and through me, dependent upon the Spirit, on his presence and power. What he calls me to, he equips me for from within. And then finally, in the two-dimensional view, there is a stark separation between faith and works. Belief and love are separate things altogether. Faith over here, which makes me right with God. Works over here, which really have nothing to do with faith. But in the three-dimensional view, there is no separation between faith and works. Belief and love are integrated. And it is inconceivable to think of a life of faith that is separate from a life of love. Part of why God rescued me was for the sake of others that he puts around me. So love God, love neighbor, as Jesus says, it's all part of one life. So before we turn to the passage that we are, are looking at today, just take a moment and look at that chart. And let me ask you, which one best describes your understanding of the Christian life or your experience of it? The room in the Holiday Inn Nice as far as it goes, but not going far enough. Or the never-ending, endlessly surprising grounds of St. John's College. Well, the passage that we are looking at today, 1 John chapter 4, verses 12 to 16, assumes and fleshes out this three-dimensional understanding of the Christian life. So let's turn there now. The five verses that we are looking at today contain three really amazing ideas that I want to make sure that we have a chance to see. The first one, the most amazing one of all, is found in verse 12, and it is too amazing for us to start with. We have to end with that, because it's really what this whole passage is all about. It starts with the main point. So let's move on to verse 13, and we'll find the first amazing idea in this passage. Verse 13, we know that we live in him and he in us because he has given us of his spirit. The gift of the Holy Spirit's presence and power points us back to the promise that Jesus gave his disciples on the night before he died. He said in John chapter 14, verses 16 and 17, I will ask the Father and he will give you another counselor to be with you forever, the spirit of truth, and he will live with you and will be in you. That is just stunning when you think about it. 
For those of us who are followers of Christ, God's promise is that he will send his spirit to live in us and to empower us for the Christian life from the inside out. And that's just exactly what John is expressing here in verse 13. Literally, it says he, is, he has given us out of his spirit. God pours his presence into us, the spirit of God, who then pours his power and life into us. This dramatically shifts our understanding of the Christian life from something for God to something from God. God puts his spirit in us and he sets to work on us from the inside of us, bringing us into an understanding of the truth, forming the fruit of the spirit in us, making us more like Jesus, gifting us for ministry. Suddenly the Christian life becomes not a burden that rests on me, but a privilege in which I am blessed to participate. And God is not someone I'm scrambling to conciliate, but someone with whom I am seeking to cooperate. Do you see how that begins to open up that third dimension of the Christian life and to make it more of a dynamic adventure of cooperating with God than this static burden that rests on me? Is that how you understand where the burden of your life of faith rests on God rather than on you? I wonder what God might be saying to you here. Okay, the second amazing idea is found in verse 13 and in verse 15 and again in verse 16. As I read these verses, listen specifically for how John describes the nature of our relationship with God. Beginning in verse 13, we know that we live in him and he in us because he has given us of his spirit and we have seen and testified that the Father has sent his Son to be the Savior of the world. And if anyone acknowledges that Jesus is the Son of God, God lives in him and he in God. And so we know and rely on the love that God has for us. God is love. And whoever lives in love lives in God and God in him. Did you hear it repeated three times? Here's how John describes the nature of the relationship we have with God. We live in him and he in us, verse 13. Verse 15, God lives in him and he in God. And again, verse 16, who lives in God and God in him. All three verses describe what Christians for years have referred to as mutual abiding. God abides in me, I abide in God. Does that sound familiar to you? It should. I'm sure you remember what Jesus said in John's gospel, chapter 15, Here's what he says in verse five. I am the vine and you are the branches. And if a man remains in me and I in him, he will bear much fruit. And apart from me, you can do nothing. The word used in the gospel and in this first letter of John is the same word. It can be translated live or dwell or remain or abide. When it is used of people rather than of places, as it is here, it's a word that describes the closest possible relationship. God is home in your heart and you are home in God. So Jesus uses the same word to describe his own intimate relationship with the Father. John chapter 14 verse 10. Don't you believe that I am in the Father and the Father is in me? And the words that I say to you, I don't speak of my own authority. Rather, it is the Father living, dwelling, abiding in me who is doing this work. 
But then, amazingly, Jesus turns right around and uses exactly the same phrase to describe our relationship with the Father. If we follow Jesus, he says, God lives in us and we live in him. The God living in us part emphasizes, or the God living in us part emphasizes God's generous provision for us as he gives us all we need. We are filled with his powerful presence as we walk through each day. He convicts us, he teaches us, he comforts us, he bears his fruit in us, he equips us with his gifts, he gives us courage to bear witness to him, all promises about how the Spirit will equip us. And the us living in God part emphasizes our intimate relationship with him. As he is, not just gives us, but is for us all that we need. Through Christ, we have full access to the Father. We are with him always. His love is our home. And we can walk through the day speaking with him, enjoying him, worshiping him, resting in him. Jesus lives in the Father and the Father lives in him. We live in the Father and the Father lives in us. Now, before we move on from this, let me just make a connection for you if you haven't already seen this. Mutual indwelling always leads to a changed life. Living a life that lines up more and more with who God is and what God is doing. It has to. If God is in me and I am in God, I will become a different person. As you saw in John chapter 14, verse 10, Jesus makes this connection. He says that because he is in the Father and the Father is in him, it's not his own words that he speaks. It's not his own work that he does. Because of this mutual abiding is the Father's words that he speaks, and it is the Father's work that he does. Well, the same conclusion is true for us as well. If we are true followers of Jesus, then we are in the Father and the Father is in us. And what that should mean for us just as it did for Jesus, is a life that conforms to and reflects God's character. Obviously, because Jesus is God, it did that perfectly in him. Because we are not God, we will put on display his character imperfectly and only over time, but it will show up. And here's how we can expect it to show up. According to John, a life of mutual abiding produces a life of faith, Verses 14 and 15, and we have seen and testified that the Father has sent his Son to be the Savior of the world. If anyone acknowledges that Jesus is the Son of God, God lives in him and he in God. And a life of mutual abiding produces a life of love. Verse 16, and so we know and rely on the love that God has for us. God is love and whoever lives in love lives in God and God in him. God says, or John says, it is only possible for us to believe as we should, not just believing the right things about Jesus, but as John says in 4.16, knowing and relying on, banking on the love that God has for us, putting the weight of our lives on the trustworthiness of God. And it is only possible for us to love as we should, not just being nice and kind when we are able to muster that up in a moment, but as John says in chapter 3, verse 16 of his letter, laying down our lives for each other. It's only possible for us to believe as we should and to love as we should when we are in a relationship of mutual abiding with the Father 
through the Son, by the Spirit. I'll tell you, I have tried over the years as a self-improvement project to try to make myself a more loving person. And I failed. I just can't do it. But the more I rest in God and in his love for me, and the more I open myself up to the presence of God and his work in me, the more a heart of love gets formed in me. Mutual abiding leads to a life that reflects who God is and what God is doing. It is really important, particularly for us as evangelicals, to hear this. The Bible doesn't recognize a life that is saved by grace, but that is not marked by love. If God lives in us and we live in God, then that kind of a life doesn't even make sense. A life of faith will always become a life of love. As John says in 1 John chapter 2, verse 6, whoever claims to live or abide or dwell in Jesus must walk as Jesus did. So again, let's just pause a moment to think about our own lives. Do you see how this understanding of the Christian life as one of mutual abiding has the potential to open up still further that third dimension of the Christian life? And is that your experience and is that your understanding of a sort of day-to-day access that you have to the presence and the power of God as a follower of Christ? What might it mean to your relationship with God if that was more the case? Okay, so now with all of that in place, we can go back to verse 12 and wrap up with the third really amazing thing in this passage. It's the most amazing thing of all, I think, and it's the thing that this whole passage is about. 1 John chapter 4, verse 12. No one has ever seen God, but if we love one another, God lives in us and his love is made complete in us. Now here's what makes that passage so stunning. In John's gospel, in the prologue, Chapter 1, verse 18, John uses just these same opening words, no one has ever seen God, but to make a really different point. John chapter 1, verse 18, no one has ever seen God, but the one and only Son, who is himself God and is in closest relationship with the Father, has made him known. So how does the invisible God reveal himself in this world? Well, clearly, through Jesus God incarnate, God in the flesh, partially, but not completely. And that is the absolutely boggling part of this. According to John, even though Jesus reveals God perfectly, he doesn't reveal him completely. Jesus doesn't finish God's self-revelation. There is more to God's plan to reveal himself to this world, and unbelievably, it is through us Flawed, sinful, selfish us, the body of Christ, the new incarnation of Jesus in this world, putting the invisible God on display. How? By living a life of love. I still painfully remember when my friend Kim, who I had led to Christ really just weeks after I became a follower of Christ during my senior year in college, she came down to Cincinnati, where I was working with Procter & Gamble, to, uh, to visit me, to have dinner with me. At that point, I had just been a follower of Christ for about six months. 
At the end of the visit, I was kind of noticing something wasn't quite right, but I really wasn't sure what it was. And then after two weeks of complete silence on our relationship, I finally just called her up. She was just a friend. I just finally called her up and said, hey, can you tell me what's wrong? Long pause. And then this is what she says. David, the entire time I was with you, all you did was talk about you. Your job, your car, your condo. It made me sick. You didn't ask me a single question about me. You didn't show interest in me at all. If that's what it means to be a follower of Jesus, I don't want to have anything to do with it. And that was the last I ever heard from her. Ugh, I hate that. But I can still remember how moving and how humbling it was when Jill, who years later was living with us in Colorado Springs, was standing in our kitchen talking to Sharon and me about some of the things that made it difficult for her to come to a place of fully trusting her life to Jesus. But then she started to reflect on some of the ways that, that we had shown love to her from the moment we met her when she was our waitress at Red Robin. And we began to show interest in her. And then we intentionally began to pursue a friendship with her. And then we eventually invited her to come and to live in our home with us and be part of our family. And she paused and then she said, so if that's what makes the two of you the way you are, well then, that's what I want. Glory to God. No one has ever seen God, but if we love one another, God lives in us and his love is made complete in us. It is put on display in us. God intends for our lives, specifically the way that we love, to answer the world's questions about God. Not only during this chaotic and uncertain time of COVID, but always, as long as God has us here in this lost and broken world. Is there a God? Well, look at how she loves. There must be. How else would you explain a life that looks like that? What is God like? Well, look at how he loves. God must be loving like he is. Does God see us? Well, look at how they love one another. God must see our need the way that they see each other's needs and respond to those. Does God care? Look at how you love me. He must care for me, just like you do. How does the, think about this, how does the invisible God reveal himself in this world? His word, God breathed, perfect, without error. His son, God sent, perfect, without sin. And his church, God created, imperfect, flawed, broken, but putting the perfect Love of God on display. Talk about an adventure. What could possibly be more gratifying than an understanding of the Christian life in which we are an indispensable part of the way that God makes himself known in this world? 
I want to sign on for that. Would you pray with me? Lord, take our lives. We offer them up to you. Consecrate them. Set them apart for your loving purposes in this world. Make our lives distinctive by your presence in them. And use us and the way that we love to put your love on display. We pray this in the name of Jesus, our King. Amen.